Welcome to Kaya, the college and young adult ministry of Midtown Baptist Temple, a ministry seeking to pursue a deeper faith in Jesus Christ through God's Word, fellowship, and prayer. How's that? Okay. It's so good to see you guys today. Yeah? I feel like there's an, there's an energy about us. Maybe it's Christmas. The, the Christmas spirit, spirit holdover here. Everybody have a good time with their family? Yeah? Some people are like, eh. Um, okay, so real quick. Mission focus. Uh, I think it would be wrong if I didn't take just a moment to hype that up. I, I, I don't know. Uh, Nick, you did a great job, by the way. Okay. But, uh, but I want you to fully understand, um, I have been at every mission focus uh, since its inception. Before that, many of you, uh, the older, basically Mark Astrid and I, the older people in the room. Uh, maybe Andrew Ong. Where's Andrew? There's a few of us that remember back in the day we used to, to have a conference back at KCBT uh, that was also just like what we do here. Um, and here's, here's the significance of it. Mission focus is an opportunity for us to reset the way that we think about the mission every single year because if we lose sight of the mission, then we lose sight of our faith. You understand? Uh, God has called us to reach the world with the gospel. That's what he's called us to do. That's our job, our responsibility. And so in many regards, mission focus is like, like the most important job fair you could ever attend. All right? And, uh, and you're going to be go, uh, going with the intention of getting inspired by God's word, but then also to get a personal vision where God is leading you and guiding you in a direction uh, that will impact the rest of your life. What is the mission that God is calling you to uh, in the midst of, uh, of the mission to the world? He's got a specific plan for you. And I do believe, and it's what I've been praying for, for been praying for for Kaya for uh, weeks now, is that each of you would be learning uh, year by year what it is that God's calling you to do in terms of His mission, what His plan is for you. And so it's a pretty big deal, and we want to invite everybody to be a part of that. Um, if you are having making plans to like maybe check in and, and see what it's about, um, I, I I would wager to bet. Uh, you'd be very disappointed if you don't carve out time to be a part of everything that you can be a part of. Um, today is our last message in the Righteous Remnant series. This is it. Yeah. You guys don't seem bummed about that. Um, like, okay, so what? Uh, well, it's a big deal to me. I can keep doing this, uh, but we're not going to. Uh, we're going to get back into Acts uh, at the beginning of this next year. And so the next time we come together, we'll be in Acts and we'll be studying the, the life of the early uh, ministry of the apostles again. Um, but I've really enjoyed this series. It's been very good for me personally. And uh, we've been most recently talking about the prophet Elijah. Okay, And James chapter 5 gives us some insight into who Elijah was. And it says this thing about him, uh, that he was a man of like passions to us. Right. So what the Bible says is that we should be able to relate to this guy, Elijah, this prophet of old, this, this man, we read about it, we read about his life, and it seems so exceptional, right? It seems so bizarre and so exceptional. And when we look at his life, we often say to ourselves, well, we're not, our lives as Christians aren't anything like that. They don't seem anything like, I've never called down fire from heaven. Uh, I've, never, I've never killed 450 uh, evil prophets of Baal. I've never done those things. And so it seems so distant uh, what he was called to do and to live and to be seems so different than me, except for when I look at his life, I, I recognize that the emotional cycles that Elijah found himself in, they look a lot like the ones that I find myself in. And at times, I feel really bold the way Elijah felt. I feel you know, empowered and excited by the mission. And then sometimes I feel maybe low and distant from God. Sometimes I'm broken. Sometimes I'm elated. Sometimes I feel strong, sometimes I feel weak, sometimes I'm sad. And all of these things, we see these traits in our life 
as well. As Christians, we see these things are true of us. Now, several times throughout the years, we've, we've found ourselves talking about the issue of depression in our ministry. And, and all of you are, are very aware, you've been made aware over and over again by the media that you're like the most depressed, you're the most depressed generation that like ever existed in America. And the statistics prove that. So from time to time, we find ourselves talking about this issue of depression. And, uh, you know, we find ourselves depressed as Christians just the way that the lost world does. We find ourselves in those places of, of, of sadness, uh, emotional lowness. But there's something distinct about the way that we should think about our depression and, the, and those times of sadness. There's something unique about it. And one of the things that we recognize in the moments that we are depressed is that, uh, is that we have a way of escape that the, the lost world doesn't. We have a way of perspective, getting perspective that the lost world does not have. They don't have that out. They don't have the ability to find uh, their, their stability in God. And so they find themselves despairing. And they find themselves in a deeper place, further than depression. Now, I would say this. Is I'd say that actually depression is a very normal thing. We talk about depression as a mental illness, but I believe, just like other emotions, depression is, is, is an important aspect of who we are, the same way happiness and sadness are. And they kind of, it's a, it's a barometer for where we're at in life. And so there are, there are reasons and seasons to be depressed. But we have to be very careful to not let our depression become despair. And when depression becomes despair, we're headed down the wrong path, and we have lost our perspective at that point. Now, what we're going to see in Elijah's life today and in this story, we, there's so much to cover, and I don't honestly know what I'm going to get to and what I'm not. So, you know, pray for God's guidance. But we're going to see Elijah in a place where his depression has become despair, just like this. And he's a, in a place that's probably the lowest, we, we see him in this story for sure, but probably the lowest point of his entire life. And in today's message, we're going to learn how God responds when his servants are at their very lowest. We're going to learn about uh, God's tender mercy towards his children in the darkest times of their life. We're going to learn the way out of despair and back to a life of joy and purpose, okay? Are you guys all right with all of that? Okay, we've got a lot of key points. I think we have eight key points today, so have your, your pens ready. Uh, and, and be able to stay with me. Let's pray real quick and ask for God's help. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we, we love you, and we thank you so much for who you are. And uh, Lord, before we even get a chance to, to, to study this out, I want to say thank you for being the type of God that desires to know me, that desires to be with me, that understands me in my lowest points, or the things that Elijah suffered and endured, um, Lord, we know that Jesus Christ suffered even to a greater, uh, a greater emotional place, even a darker place Jesus Christ was at. He suffered all the things that we've suffered. And he's been tempted in all the ways that we've been tempted. And we have a God that knows us and knows what we've been through. And he can relate to us. And yet he calls us, he calls us out of that. And he nurtures us and comforts us back to a place of right thinking and a right heart. So, Lord, we ask you uh, today to show us what that looks like to rely on you for, for your help and for your comfort and that we would know you and that we'd be able to find you in the dark places and that, Lord, we would rely on you for, for everything we need uh, to, to be stable in this life and in this ministry. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so in terms of our story, uh, we, we, last time we were together, we watched Elijah... Um, confront Ahab and the prophets of Baal. We talked about judgment and we talked about uh, the mission and, and, and our prayer lives and, and being broken. And if, and if you desire, you didn't get to hear those messages, please go back. But now we're on the other side of that judgment. Okay? And, and we already know at this point, Elijah has killed 450 prophets. Uh, and uh, now he's hoping and he's praying that all of this stuff that happened on Mount Carmel would result in the repentance of the nation of Israel. That's what he's been longing for, and that's what he's been waiting for. But what we're going to discover now is that the thing that he's been hoping for for three and a half years, it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. It doesn't happen the way that he imagines it. And so let's look at chapter 19, verse 1. And Ahab 
told Jezebel, remember King Ahab is, is the wicked king over Israel, his wife is Jezebel, all that Elijah had done. So he goes back to her and informs her of what's happened at Mount Carmel. And withal, how he had slain all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger unto Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me, and more so, and more also, if I make not thy life uh, as the, the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And then he saw that, he arose, and went for his life, and came to Beersheba, which belongeth to Judah, and left his servants there. Okay, so what is she saying? She's saying... That the, the gods would do to her, as was done to the prophets, if she doesn't enact retribution against Elijah by, by noon the next day. So she's, she is gunning for Elijah. She's going to hunt him down, and she's going to kill him. All right? But Elijah's response to that is a little bit unexpected, at least from the Elijah that I know, right? He takes off running. Now, this is where many people would say this is the beginning of Elijah's, this is the moment of his depression. And I, and I get why they'd say that, but let's look at it a little bit more closely and consider why is it that Elijah falls into this despair? What is it that starts this into motion? Okay, and we could say, we could say that it's the statement, this time tomorrow I'm going to kill you. And we know this statement, it caused Elijah to flee. We know that it caused him to run and to hide. We know that, it tells us that. But it's odd for me to think of Elijah running because of Jezebel's threats, right? It seems a little bit strange that he would be so concerned about her threats in this moment when he's just single-handedly killed 450 men, yeah? Seems a little bit strange when God uses him to call down fire from heaven that he'd be scared of some, some minor threat from the queen at this point. It seems a little bit out of character after all that he's experienced and seen that these threats would stir him to fear. But what I find, when I look beyond the surface and when I think about my own life, is that fear is a very funny thing, isn't it? The way it sneaks up on us, the things that we are afraid of sometimes. And here's the deal, fear will always enter into our lives if we are, allow ourselves to be emotionally susceptible and weak. The moment that our emotions are at their weakest point, fear will kick in. We will begin to fear things that we would not fear otherwise. And it might even lead, lead us to flee. Arthur Pink says uh, this, uh, The best of men are just men at best. I really like that statement. The very best of men. We think of Elijah as being one of the very best men that we could think of. I mean, we're doing this series on the righteous remnant, and we look at Elijah's life, and we say, well, he was definitely a righteous remnant. He was a man that endured, and that he, he, he went through a lot of suffering, but yet he stood for God in and, and, and a time that was difficult to do, and he was righteous, righteous all the way through it. He's definitely a man of God, someone we honor when we talk about, and yet he was just a man. He was just a man. And so we can look at Elijah's life and we can kind of feel a little bit of relief right here because, because even, even us, you know, we're growing in our faith and, and we're becoming disciples of Jesus Christ. We're engaging the mission and we feel like we're growing, but there's going to come times and there's going to come moments where we feel down and we feel in despair and that's just because we're human. That's just because we're human beings and there's going to be moments of fear where we look at the mission and we say, it's too great for me, Lord. Or we look at what's happened and we say, God, I can't believe this is what's happening in my life. This is not what I anticipated. And we might find ourselves in very low places. And I want you to know that that's common for every man of God in Scripture. It was true for Moses. It was true for David. It was true for Elijah. And it's true for us. And I love that the Bible doesn't talk about men in the Scriptures. It's not hiding anything, right? It reveals the strengths and the weaknesses of all these men that we see in these stories. It reveals those things, and we can look to them, and we can say to ourselves that even the best of men are just men at best, and that's true for us uh, too. And as men, just like the righteous remnant of old, just like these people that we look up to in the Scriptures, we too lose perspective, and then we, we are prone to despair. And that's true, and we've got to understand that. When we lose our perspective, we are prone to despair. And perspective is crucial. And so Elijah is running away, um, not necessarily out of fear alone. The fear 
maybe is a symptom, the fleeing is a symptom of something much more complicated. And that's what we're going to look at here. Elijah's fear was much greater than death. Because we even see in this story that it's not really death that Elijah fears. Okay? It's not really just death that he's fearing. See, what Elijah fears is failure. What Elijah fears in his life, much like us, is failure. He fears to fail. We find here that Elijah's greatest fear is that he has no worth in God's mission and in this life. He thinks thinks his usefulness has run out. Let's look at what he says. Let's talk about this fear of failure. Verse 4. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree and requested for himself that he might die. This is, he's talking to the Lord, and he says to the Lord, It's enough. It's enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am not better than my father's. So if it was just death alone that he was fearing, well, he's, he's calling for the end of his life, right? So it's not really the death that he's fearing. It's the fear that he's failed to do the one thing that he believes that he was called to do. And, and listen, I want to point this out real quick. I think it's important to note is he says, take away my life. And I want to acknowledge right now that there's people in this room that have said the same thing to the Lord. There's many people in this room that have despaired to the point where they desire to die. That's a really tough place to be in. And that is where despair leads. It, it leads to, to that kind of thinking that, that you say to yourself that my life doesn't even have any value anymore. Now I want to point something out to you. And there's, I know that there's people in here that call themselves Christians and there's people that, that aren't saved. You, you don't know Jesus as your Savior. I want to say this to both of you. Jesus Christ died to set us free. And it is true that we have very, very little worth. But we had enough worth for him to to die for us. He values us. He cherishes us. And even though we have very little worth, he's called us valuable. He loves us. And he's got a plan for our lives. And there is hope in him. And that was true at the moment of your salvation. And for every person in here, that does not know Christ as their Savior, I'm telling you right now, every moment that you breathe is grace on your life. And He is looking at you, and and He's got a plan for you, and He's calling you, and even right now, He's calling on you to come to Him and to find your rest there. But it's true for Christians and non-Christians that sometimes we despair, and we go so far down that path of despair that we can even say to ourselves, I don't even want to live anymore. I don't see my value. And those moments come as the result of not having a proper perspective on who God is. And today we're going to look, no matter what range of of despair you find yourself in or moments of depression, maybe they're fleeting, maybe depression for you looks like a day. Some of you find yourself in places of darkness for a week or a month, and you go down that path, and you know that it's a habit for you to go down to places of of, of darkness and despair. And wherever you find yourself on that that path of depression, I want to tell you that Jesus Christ has a way out. He has a way out. But it's going to require you getting his perspective. Let's look at his despair and his failure a little bit more. Elijah fell into despair because he believed that he he had failed at accomplishing the work he was made to do. He had failed at the mission. Everybody knows that, uh, that, especially as you get older and you get a career, that a lot of times you identify yourself by the thing that you do, right? I think it was, it was Nick that talked about this not too long ago, right? This idea that when someone asks you, um, hey, so, so tell me about yourself, that we often, the first thing that we talk about is the thing that we do, right? Our, our job, our career path, right? You might say that you're an engineer or you're a school teacher or whatever it might be, and that's what you say. And, and, and Nick made the point that really, if we were honest as Christians, what we would be telling people is, well, I'm an evangelist, right? I'm a missionary. I'm a discipler. I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm a disciple of Jesus. If we were real honest, what we would tell people, the first thing that would come to our mind is, hey, you know what? I'm a missionary. And Elijah was that type of person. 
Elijah was actually the type of person who, if you asked him what he did, he would say, well, I'm a missionary. I'm a prophet. I speak the truth of Jesus, or I speak the truth of God. I speak the f- prophetic truth of Jesus Christ, right? That's what he did, and that's, that's how he saw himself. And in this moment, all of the pressure that he put on himself, the three and a half years of waiting, right? All of that time spent just in prayer and contemplation and waiting on the Lord, all of it came to a head at Mount Carmel. And yet, when it was all said and done, he looks around and not a single person in the nation of Israel seems to have repented of their sin. He looks around and he's like, well, I mean, you were saying, Lord, Lord, just a second ago, but the day has passed, 24 hours have passed, and now I'm, I'm looking around and, and I don't see the nation of Israel following God. They've all gone back to their homes. The show is over. The experience is done with. And they're just as depraved and just as wicked as they were yesterday. And, and Jezebel saying, hey, I'm coming, to, I'm coming to kill you, was just the final straw. And it was just the, the proof The proof that Elijah needed that he had failed in his mission, that he'd failed to be the one thing that he desired to be. Key point number one. When our worth is measured in wins and losses, we are prone to despair. When our worth is measured in wins and losses, we are going to be prone to despair. You know, we so often measure our identity on our perception of success or failure. I mean, that's true if we identify with our job, and that's true if we identify with the mission. Right? We so often tell ourselves, well, this is the thing that I wanted God to do in my Bible study, or or, this is the thing that I wanted to see God do in my family. This is the thing that I wanted to see God do at my workplace when I was sharing the gospel, but I've been rejected. I've failed. I look around and I don't see the fruit that I anticipated. I don't see the things that I, that I asked of God, the fruitfulness that I desired of God more than anything in the world. Those were the things that I wanted. I wanted those souls. And I look around and it, and it seems as though I've failed. But here's the problem with that. Here's the problem with that way of thinking. God does not measure success or failure in terms of what fruit you get to garner. The strength of your hand. The power of your reputation. The cunningness of your words or your ability to speak truth in a way that's so eloquent. He doesn't measure your wins and losses that way. He measures wins and losses in your life in terms of obedience and faith. But we get confused. We got our perspective off. And we find ourselves disappointed. We look around at our ministry life. We find ourselves disappointed in what we see. Things haven't worked out the way that we imagined. And I think we can all relate to the way Elijah feels right now. We've all, we've all at times felt like failures, haven't we? When you thought life would go one way and it ended up taking an unexpected turn. When you feel like you've failed God. When you feel like you've let other people down. When suddenly your purpose and your identity seems as though it's been robbed from you completely. I remember at one point, uh, I remember, this is just random, Eric, I'm thinking about you. There was a moment where you saw your ministry change from ministering to all those Muslim guys that you were encountering and then suddenly, you're, it seemed like that ministry just changed overnight. Like you were rejected by that community a little bit. And it just, everything changed. And you had a moment, I felt like of depression in that moment because you felt like your identity had shifted. Am I right? And I think all of us have experienced that. There's moments where we feel like we failed or we've wasted something or something's changed or the rug was pulled out from underneath us and nothing looks the way that we expected it to and we feel like we failed. And I believe this is exactly how Elijah felt, as though he had wasted his life. 
Let's go on. It says, O Lord, take away my life, for I'm not better than my father's. Looking back on his short ministry career, he starts comparing himself against the failures of his forefathers, who on their watch let the nation slip into idolatry. See, Elijah had lost perspective on his identity, and Jezebel's threats only proved that he had failed at the one thing that God had called him to do. And as he looks around, he's just like, okay, well, my life doesn't look any better than those guys that I disrespect with every fiber of my being. My life is just the same as the wicked. It's amounted to nothing. It's been wasted. So here's key point two. Comparing ourselves to the fame or failure of others makes us prone to despair. It does. When we compare ourselves to others, all we're doing is measuring ourselves against other people's fame or their failures. In this, in this case, Elijah was afraid that he was no better than the wicked gen generations that had preceded him. He had forgotten who he was, and he had to be loved into a right perspective. And so just a note on comparing ourselves to other people. This is a very easy thing to do. Bible study leaders, you know you've done this. You've compared your Bible study to other people's Bible studies. But I want to be real honest with you. Like, like just as your pastor, don't ever do that. That's not good. What you're called to do and to achieve doesn't need to look like what other people are being called to do and achieve. And it's just, comparing yourself to other people is just a slippery slope because the thing is, every person that's, that's famous in your eyes, anybody that's, that seems to be doing well or seems to be fruitful in ministry, they've got a long list of failures as well. They're just as weak and depraved as you are. If we start comparing our lives to other people, our ministry to other people, we're only just going to be let down. It's a waste of time. And it's the perfect trap of Satan. Because it's circular. It goes round and round and round, and you get stuck there. It's like a, it's like a bottomless pit. Funny, that's where actually Satan's going to spend a lot of time one day as a bottomless pit. Maybe that's paybacks. But you can get caught in this bottomless pit of comparing yourself to other people. I want to tell you, that's, that's a perfect recipe for despair. But listen to me. So we, can we all just say, yes, we recognize that there are things about Elijah's situation right now that I relate to. Yeah? But here's the deal. There's a way out of that. Whatever it is, whatever you're facing in terms of depression and despair, there's a way out of that. And, and to be honest with you, there's only really just one way. One way that's meaningful. One way to recover yourself from the pit of despair. Let's look at that. Verse 5. And he's, as he lay and slept under a juniper tree. Now, I don't want to go into this because I don't have time, but I want to tell you something about, there's something about sleep and depression. Okay, I, I, want, to I want to say, speak to this real quick because you guys are young people and uh, young people are really bad at sleep. You have a very poor perspective on sleep. Okay? And so, so Elijah sleeps here. And I, I want to point something out to you. First of all, that when people are depressed, they, they tend to sleep, and they tend to sleep sporadically. It's actually a sign of depression that someone sleeps too much. Okay? And some of you might be taking stock of your life right now, and you're saying to yourself, you're like, yeah, I know, I, I do, I find myself doing that. And what it is, it's just an escape. It's a short-term escape. It's not the answer. The answer doesn't lie in a nap. Okay, it's just a short-term escape. And so for some of us, we recognize that one of the warning signs of our own depression is the fact that, that we, we find ourselves napping at times of the day that seem completely inappropriate. It's because we're down. But there's another thing I want to point out is that, that sleep is actually very, very important. And a consistent sleep plan, consistent sleep ha habits are, are crucial to your health, both to your body and to your mind. Some of the people that I talk to about their depression, a lot of times I talk to them about their health and I ask them about their sleep. And, and the thing that they say is that their sleep is sporadic. Their sleep is it's never the same. They, stay up, they stay up late for tests because they don't prioritize their time the right way. They don't balance their schedule the right way. And they find themselves sleeping all kinds of weird hours. And I just want to warn you that those types of habits, you know, staying up late in the studio, some of you art students know about that. 
and, and not balancing your life the right way so that you can go to bed at 10 o'clock and wake up at 5 or whatever it is, whatever that pattern needs to be, it needs to be consistent. And if you find that out of consistency a lot, I'm telling you right now, it's going to throw your body off. It's going to throw your mind off. And it will make you susceptible to depression. Okay, that's just a side note. That's, that's, that's the dad in me talking as much as anything. But building sleep consistently, uh, consistent sleep is, is one line of defense uh, against emotional inconsistency, right? And so if you realize that you're like this, up and down, and your, your emotions are inconsistent, well, probably a lot of that has to do with the fact that you, you need to start acting like a grown-up. I mean, that's, this is the phase of your life where you decide, I'm going to start acting like a grown-up. And I know that, you know, Kenny Morgan goes to bed at like 6.30 in the afternoon. I'm not asking in the evening... I'm not asking you to do that, but like 10 o'clock seems appropriate, okay? So you're ready to wake up and, and to spend time with the Lord. But okay, let's look at, let's look at what I really want to focus on, okay? It says, uh, Behold, then an angel touched him and said unto him, Arise and eat. Arise and eat. An angel touched him. Okay, wait a second. Now, this isn't any, just any angel. All right, look down to verse 7. And the angel of the Lord came again the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat. Now, we've talked about this before, okay? So I'm expecting you to have the answer here, okay? We've even talked about it in this series. But when we talk about the angel of the Lord in Scripture, who is that referring to? Okay, good. Okay, this is the pre-incarnate Christ, which is mind-boggling. If I just taught this as an angel, that would be an amazing story, right? That'd be great. Wow, this angel came, visited Elijah. But what we do, we, we, we recognize that when we study angel of the Lord throughout Scripture, that is almost in every instant definitively Jesus Christ. There's maybe one instance where it's like debatable. And so here we find not just any angel, not just some mere angel coming to visit Elijah in his moment of despair, this is the pre-incarnate Son of God coming to visit His friend. I mean, I don't know about you, but that's mind-boggling, and it brings a level of comfort that I often neglect in my own life. I often forget that when I'm in those moments of, of depression or disappointment, that Jesus Christ Himself wants to come visit with me. And look what He says. It says that He went and He touched Him. Now, to be touched by the Son of God. So Christ, what we find is that Christ waited alongside him throughout the night, sat by his side. Anybody ever felt the comfort of a... This got real loud all of a sudden. I'm going to move it down. Something's happening. I got billowy. Um... Ever been sick with the flu and have your mom sit, sit up with you like late into the night? That's like a unique kind of comfort, isn't it? Like when you're not feeling well and, and, and you've got a parent that's willing to sit up with you and, and to, to be with you and to... Clementine loves to have her back rubbed, right? And that brings a certain level of comfort. I mean, think of that times a thousand in your moment of despair to have the Son of God come in and to touch you and to wait up with you through the night. And when you wake up in the morning only to find that He's prepared a meal for you. That's an, amaz that's an amazing thought. Which leads us to key point number three. In our darkest moments, Jesus is the light that brings us back to the path. In the darkest moments of our life, Jesus Christ is the light that brings us back to the path that we need to be in, to the, to the place of perspective, the place where the mission seems right, where our identity is sourced in Him alone, where we're no longer comparing ourselves to other people or thinking of ourselves in terms of fame or failure, or thinking of ourselves in terms of who He's called us to be. In those moments where He's calling us and drawing us to the light, those are the moments where we remember that we're the children of God. We're the children of God. And Jesus is enough. He's always been enough. 
He was enough to deliver us from hell and He's enough to deliver us from despair. Romans 5, 6. For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. In other words, in life we know that very few people would die for even a good man. Right? Just people aren't that way. But listen. Yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's the kind of God that we have. That's, that's the kind of, of God that we worship. He's, he's for us and with us in that way. That he was willing to die for us. Now watch how Jesus, as the servant of service, servants, ministers to Elijah. As Elijah slept, Christ waited and prepared for him a humble yet supernatural meal that would give him the energy he needed to continue on. 1 Kings 19.5 says, and he, it says, And as he lay and slept under a juniper tree, Behold, then an angel touched him and said unto him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was a cake bacon on the coals and a cruise of water at his head. And he did eat and drink and laid him down again. We find him here awake to a cake and a pitcher of water. And so what we see here is that he awakes to Christ's nourishment. His nourishment. And I think... For us, this should be a very clear picture. Is that Jesus Christ wants us to awake from our slumber to his nourishment. The food and the water that he has for us, which is what? His word. His word. We need his sustenance, and his sustenance is his very words that we would consume them. That every time we awake, we would awake to his cake and his water. And then we would take and we would eat. And we'd be prepared to move forward in faith. And if we want to, if we want to ward off aberrant and, and messed up and inconsistent feelings that we must recognize our need for daily spiritual nourishment and the nurture of our friend, Jesus Christ. This is how he, if you want to be nourished by Jesus, listen to me, there's too many people that come into this worship set and look for nourishment from the singing and the experience that we have together alone. That's not good enough. See, that's not even how Jesus nourishes. He's chosen to nourish through his word. And when we, of our own volition, of our own will, free agency, wake up in the morning and find ourselves with our face in this book, then that is the way that we chase away the dark feelings and the moments of melancholy. That's how we do it. It's not going to be you conjuring up some sort of spiritual experience in your day where you listen to the worship song in your car amped up. That's not going to deliver you from the feelings of despair. Maybe for a moment. But see, the thing I know about this book is that it changes my life. This is what conforms me to his image. This does that. And I've got to rely on it to bring me there. You understand? Verse 7, And the angel of the Lord came again the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat. So he does this, this all over again. He falls back asleep. He asks him to wake up. He says, Arise and eat because the journey is too great for thee. Who else knows that? Who else knows that the journey is too great for you to accomplish? Man, we think about, you know, the call that God's put on our lives in this ministry. To win Kansas City for Christ? I mean, it seems too great, doesn't it? That journey is, it is too long for us. It's too great. It's too difficult. That is unless we find our source in Jesus Christ and His Word. Then suddenly we don't think in those terms. Suddenly we have whatever it takes to do the thing that he's called us to do. Whatever it takes. So key point four. Our daily nourishment is found in the word of God and nowhere else. And nowhere else.
pop psychology. I mean, there's so many of us who don't even know, but we, we hold these terms, these pop psychology terms, they're just part of our daily rhetoric. We're like inundated with therapeutic, you know, uh, definitions. Everywhere we go, people talking about how to have a better life. And people are looking for it everywhere. And the truth is, I mean, I'm, I'm not here to debate whether or not a therapist can help. What I'm here to debate is that there's no longevity in sitting down with a lost person to talk about your problems. I mean, if you want the sustaining light, if you want the sustaining nourishment, if you want the sustaining walk, if you want your life to look and mean something important, something that transcends your physical life, your material life, if you want to think outside of this realm, if you want to live God's life, then we can't find our nourishment anywhere besides this place right here. And listen to me, only the one who fasted for 40 days and 40 nights in temptation by Satan himself, has the ability to bake a, a meal and prepare a meal that's going to sustain Elijah for 40 days and 40 nights. It's pretty cool, isn't it? He's the one. He's the one. Let's continue on. Watch as, watch as the word comes to Elijah again. And he arose... He arose unto Horeb, the mount of God, is what it says. So why Mount Horeb? Is anybody familiar with Mount Horeb? What's, yeah, it's Mount Sinai. Well, where, what, what do we know about Mount Sinai? What's the significance of Mount Sinai? Sorry, I feel like I'm asking a lot of questions today. I just feel, I feel very teacherly. Okay, whoa, 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 yeah. What happened at Mount Sinai? I heard Moses. That's what I needed to hear. Moses. Okay, Moses. Moses met with God on Mount Horeb. Moses met with God on Mount Horeb. You can read about that in Exodus chapter 19. When Moses felt alone, he would go here to meet with God. This is where God's face has been seen before. And Elijah is simply looking for answers the way Moses did. And Horeb seemed like the place to find what he was looking for. And he came thither unto a cave and lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said unto him, What doest thou here, Elijah? Now, we can say a lot about this. There's many things we can say about this. I don't have time to get into it. But I, want, I think that this question is pertinent. God asked this question twice. What are you doing here? What are you doing here? And I think one of the applications that we could take from this is that God, God, before Elijah can ask any questions of God, God asks this question. I think the relevance is, is this. I believe this, in question, this question was intended to help Elijah recognize that whatever Elijah needed in terms of answers could be found at the brook of Cherith, just as well as Beersheba, as well as Mount Horeb. In other words, God communes with his people, and it's not a matter of, of location, it's a matter of fact and faith. So when he says, what are you doing here? Well, his point is, we could have met back there. I mean, did I not meet you in these other places? It's not an issue of location. There's not a place that's particularly more spiritual. There's not a state of being that's particularly more spiritual. What's spiritual is being full of faith, knowing that when you go before God, that he hears you. He hears you. And he said, this is what, this is what Elijah said, and he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts. For the children of Israel have, have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thy altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Now, I don't, in my opinion, I don't think Elijah does a very good job of explaining himself here. He just spills his guts. But the thing that I appreciate about it is that he's, he's honest, and we can see his heart. And so even, that, even though in this statement there's things that are wrong about it, there's things about this statement that are so right. They're so right. 
This is what he's saying. God, I want to see you glorified in my life. I want to be used, but I feel like I'm the only one. Anybody ever felt that way? I feel alone. God, I love you and I want to see lives change, but I feel like I've failed. Do you see me right now? God, why do I feel so alone? Why have I been made to feel like the enemy when all I want for my my family or my friends is for them to be saved and have peace in their lives? Anybody relate to that? Some of you experience that even just over the holidays. All you want is for your family and your friends to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. And yet every time the, the, the topic comes up, you're made to feel like you're the enemy. Like you've done something wrong, like you're dirty, like you're anathema in the home. Something, isn't, something about you is just not right. And you're made to feel like the enemy. That's exactly how Elijah feels. Why am I the outsider? Why am I suddenly the bad guy? Now listen, God hears his friend in his sadness and indulges these questions by responding the way that he responded to Job. Yeah? Remember that? Remember Job? He responds. He indulges these questions. Verse 11, let's see what he does. And he said, Go forth and stand upon the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind rent the mountains and break in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still small voice. And it was so, when Elijah heard it, that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entering in of the cave, and behold, there, there came a voice unto him and said, What doest thou here, Elijah? In God's mercy, he showed Elijah the power of his hand. That there's no work too big for him, that even the elements themselves obey him. Now, hold on real quick. Like, there's so much to say here, and I don't have time, but I have to hit on this just a little bit. Okay, listen to me. When God met with Moses, God was in the fire. He, he, passed, he passed before Moses. He was in the midst of all of that power and all of that, those lightnings and those thunderings that came down upon the mountain and scorched the top of that mountain. Man, God was in that. It's an amazing story. That's an experience that Moses got to have. But listen to what it says here. It says, well, the wind came, and God wasn't in the wind. And the earthquake, it came, but God wasn't in the earthquake. And the fire, it came, and God wasn't in the fire. He was in the still, small voice. And so many of us, in our lives, we're looking for some sort of sign from God that he's for us. We're looking for some sort of experience to know that he's there. God, just show yourself to me. Just make yourself known. I'm, I'm spilling my guts out here and I, I need to know you're here. And, he, and he doesn't, he's not under any obligation to come to you in some sort of fiery pillar. But listen, the mercy of God sounds like a still, small voice. And that still, small voice is always there. It's ever-present for you. He's speaking to you. He's call- you know, the beauty of being a New Testament believer is that God puts himself inside of us. And that we have a completed word of God. That's something Elijah never had. We have his finished word, ready and available to us, speaking to us in still, small whispers, calling us to something more. His power is so blinding that, God hold, or that Elijah holds up his mantle to cover his face. That's pretty powerful, isn't it? 
He, he holds the mantle up because he can't even stand to look upon the, the authority and, the, and the, 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 the power and the strength that are being exercised on the elements of that hillside. This is just like a, a Moses at the burning bush. Remember, Moses has to cover his face. Or remember when we, we talked about Job, what Job have to do when he finally realized that God was speaking and his authority and his power was known? What did he have to do? He covered his mouth. There's nothing he could say. He stood in awe. Oh, oh, that we would learn that God communes with us as a matter of grace and mercy and not experience. This is a very important lesson to learn. That God communes with us in his grace and his mercy, which come in the package of a still small voice. And that we don't need those experiences to know that God's with us. Key point five, God's comfort for his, for his children is his healing voice, not his displays of power. God's comfort for his children is in his healing voice, not in his displays of power. But nonetheless, God asks, what are you doing here, Elijah? Again, he asks the question again. And Elijah, in the exact same manner, because he doesn't know what else to say, and everything is still very true to him, he repeats himself, and he said, I've been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts. And I have to believe that this, this display of power and these words of God make him even more jealous for the Lord of hosts. Because he knows now what, what the Lord can do. Look at what God can do. He can, if he can move this mountain, he can deliver this people. If, God, if, if you are the God of the fire, and you are the God of the wind, and you're the God of the earthquakes, then you can save this city. I believe it even more. I am jealous for the Lord of hosts. Amen? Because the children of Israel, they've forsaken thy covenant, and thrown down thy altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword. And I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Elijah persists. And he says, God, I have no one to stand with me. I know that you can do it, but here I am. I'm still alone. And I want to point something out that's super important for the righteous remnant to always remember. Okay? Key point six. As the righteous remnant, we may often feel like the stranger, and that's okay. There's going to be times we feel alone. I mean, being here at Kayab makes us think to ourselves, well, we're not alone, are we? We've got so much in one another, don't we? We've got so much in our friendship, in our fellowship. We know that people stand with us, but it doesn't change the fact that when you leave the comfort of this place and this fellowship, that you find yourself in a world where you feel very alone. And you're often the stranger. And I want to say this too, since this is mission focused, I think it's appropriate. Many of the people in this room are going to be called to go plant churches. Go plant Bible studies in our city. Or go plant churches in other cities. And as, that, as, as that's happening in your life, I want to warn you, there's going to be times where you feel very, very alone. You feel like the stranger. You're going to feel that way. You're going to feel that way in ministry. You're going to feel that way in life. It's part of being a righteous remnant, and you have to come to a place where you say, you know what, that's okay. Remember Noah? What was so incredible about Noah was that he was the only one left. He was the only one. And that was okay for him. Hebrews 11.13 says, These all died in faith not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. And truly, if they, have, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned, but now they desire a better country that is in heavenly. Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. Listen to me. There are going to be times in America, a place where you believe, you believe that your faith 
and your ideology should be embraced and accepted, and it should be okay. And listen to me, more and more, day by day, it won't be. And you might say to yourself, well, this is my country. What happened to my country? My country, they used to embrace me. They used to embrace what I believe, and this used to be okay. And that's going to change, and it won't be. And it will be crucial that in those moments that you look to a country that's far from this one, a land that's far from this one. We call it heaven. And that is where our stake is laid. And that is where we belong. And it is our hope. And it will give us the ability to say, it's okay to be a stranger and a pilgrim here on earth. It's okay. But here's the good news. Alone in the world, maybe, but never really alone. Key point number seven. We are never truly alone. We are never truly alone. Hebrews 13.5 says, Let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as ye have. For he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. So that we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what men shall do unto me. John 14.16, I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world, world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. But ye know him, for he dwelleth in you, and shall be in you. And I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. Not alone. Not alone. Not alone spiritually. God is with us. He's for us. He's left us a comforter. He's given us his word. He's our friend. He walks with us in the dark times. He is for us. And though we might be a stranger and a pilgrim here, we might be a remnant on this earth. He has made us righteous and He's with us. And He's our friend. And listen, praise the Lord, He's not left us alone. Even in terms of our fellowship. Listen, verse 15, listen, listen, listen to God's mercy. Listen to His grace. Listen to his favor. Listen to what he's willing to do. Look at what he's orchestrating. Look at his plan. Verse 15, and the Lord said unto him, okay, I hear you, you're alone. Go, return on the way to the wilderness of Damascus. I love this. He tells him to go back the way he came, which is God's way of saying, remember what I've done. Just saying, just pointing that out. When thou comest, anoint, anoint Hazael, to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, shalt thou anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphath, of Abemahola, shalt thou anoint to be prophet in thy room. Okay, maybe you, maybe you didn't catch what we just read. This is what God says. Okay, I hear you. You're alone. Let me prepare a king that will set some things right, that will set the way of Ahab right. He's going to fix that. And then I'll prepare another king. And he's going to do the same. And he's going to make some changes here. And then I want to give you a disciple. His name's going to be Elisha. And you're going to go find him and you're going to invest in him. And I will, I will not leave you alone. I'm going to be at work. And just as I can move this mountain, I can, I can, I can move in men's lives. I can move people. I can change the way things are going. And because of your prayer, and even in your weakness, and, and, and not seeing the full sufficiency of my hand, I want to bring people into your life and I want to begin to use them and I want to, I want to use them to change the nation of Israel. See, there's always hope for the work to get done as long as there are disciples. You hear what I'm saying? As long as there's disciples, there's always hope for the work to get done the, ne the, the next day and the next day and the next day. And I want to call you to something. This work of discipleship, it's no mere matter. It's not some program we hear, have here at Midtown Baptist Temple. It's not just this thing we do. We are pouring our lives into one another so that this thing is generational. So that tomorrow, that tomorrow there'll be disciples. If I'm gone, that this work will persist. As long as there's disciples, there's always hope for tomorrow. And this is why you ought to disciple You've got to pour your life into someone else. As long as you're discipling, then you can know that you're not alone and that the work can get done still. 
You understand? Don't worry, I'm landing the plane. Key point eight. All this talk about being alone and God is preparing the next generation. 7,000 who have not stopped believing in me, he says. I'm preparing them. Key point eight. God is accomplishing his work. Regardless of how we feel, you know that? Or how aware we are of what he's doing, you know, regardless of how limited our understanding is. Or what we can observe with our naked eye, he is doing it. He's doing it. He's doing it. You don't have to get it. You don't have to feel right about it. He's doing it. And that ought to bolster faith in you. That that ought to change your perspective. In your loneliest moments, in the time where you feel like there's no one to help. Listen, he's doing stuff. He doesn't even need you. He's up to something. Okay. Here's the concluding remarks. Not just on this message, but on the whole Righteous Remnant series. Listen to me. Regardless of how dark it gets, God is working his plan. Regardless of how afraid we are, he is not afraid. Man, I'm so thankful for that. Regardless of how alone we feel, we are not alone. Being a Bible believer in a world that hates what we believe is not easy. But listen, you get to decide. You get to decide. If your perspective is right, then your faith will thrive regardless of your circumstances. It will. And you get to decide that if your perspective falters, then you may fall into despair and shame and run away. So let me point something out to you. We cannot afford to have our emotions out of control. We cannot afford to to not have our thoughts stayed on God. We cannot afford to not allow this book to inform the way our heart feels in any given moment. Because the moment we become emotionally weak, then we're susceptible to failure. And there is coming a judgment seat. We talked about that. And you will answer for the life that you lived. And listen to me. The righteous remnant keeps their mind their eyes and their hearts stayed on the Lord. And we get our perspective from Him. The way may be hard, but you're never going to go that way alone. We have got a world to win. We've got a world to win. Every person needs to to know the story of Jesus Christ, his, his, His coming into this world. His death, his burial, his resurrection, they need that story. And you're the one to bring it to them. And you cannot afford to lose your focus. You can't afford to be a wayward remnant. We can't afford to be Laodicean. We've got to focus. We've got to have a mission focus. You understand? And if you know you need a mission focus, then this is your opportunity to lay your emotions in the way you feel before the Lord. There's going to be counselors up here. And as our worship team leads us in a song of worship, come up here and speak with them and pray with them and set your heart right and get your focus in place. Amen? Amen. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you. And we know what you've done for us. And we thank you so much that you're prepared to comfort us in our times of need. And you're, you're there to remind us that we're not alone, that we have you, we have your word, we have your spirit, we have these friends, we have these people that minister with us We've got, Lord, we have brothers and sisters all over this world that we don't know their names, we don't know their faces. Places in hiding, churches in hiding in China. Places afraid of communists all over, all over the East. Lord, places in the, in the Middle East where your word is not even allowed, it's forbidden to have a Bible is against the law. Lord, places in Europe where the culture has seemed to do everything but snuff you out completely. Lord, places in America where revolt and uprising of culture seems to be drowning out Christians everywhere we go. 
But Lord, you're, you're raising up people that we don't know. You're at work in this world. You're doing something, and you want to use us. And Lord, we want to be used. And so just as Elijah, in our weakness, we say, Lord, we want to see you, the Lord of hosts, glorified in the lost world, in the lives of our friends, in the lives of our families, in the lives of our classmates, in the lives of our coworkers. We want to go to them, the people that we've never met. We want to go to them, and we want to see you deliver them from their idolatry. Use us, God, please. We know we're not alone, but Lord, we desire so desperately that you would work your work in our midst that we might see the fruit. We pray this, and we pray for your help. We hope that today's message encouraged you to follow Christ in his word. For more information about Kaya, for service times and information about our disciple-making ministry, please visit our website at caya.li.com.